everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 164 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc. Be sure to go to Acoustic Disc's website. You can find the link in the description or at mandolinsandbeer.com. Sign up for their email. They've been sending out the free treat of the week, which is an MP3 from one of the incredible releases that Acoustic Disc puts out. Speaking of that, they also have the Acoustic Encounters podcast with David Grisman, the dog himself, and Danny Barnes. And then this month, they've been putting out a monthly release, and this last one again was the absolutely classic Tony Rice unit album, A Beautiful New Year's Eve. So be sure to head over to Acoustic Disc today. And Grace Design. Grace Design makes some of the finest preamps that you can purchase. You want to get one of those and plug your acoustic instruments in if you have to plug in the Grace preamp is the way to go. So thank you to Grace Design. And hey there, everybody. Hope everyone is doing well out there. This will be the last episode for the next two weeks. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a doozy, Peter Rowan. Um, and we're going uh, to be doing some more in the future as well. Um, as you'll hear from this one, we just dug into the Bill Monroe years. And uh, it's, it's a great episode. Peter is so cool, so kind, just been inducted into the uh, Bluegrass Hall of Fame as well. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank everybody again for a wonderful, a wonderful year of podcast adventures, everybody I got to meet. Oh my gosh, I got to go to, uh, I went last Friday night to see the Punch Brothers in the Bela Fleck, my Bluegrass Heart Tour. It is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Uh, I saw it in Ann Arbor, and it was a beautiful, beautiful venue. It was at the Hill Auditorium. It was great. And uh, major props to Dave Cinco, who ran sound, obviously, for the Punch Brothers, and then he ran sound for as the Punch Brothers came out and played with the uh, Bela Fleck, my bluegrass heart band as well. Just the, uh, just the killer tone he's got going for those players. I mean, again, you know, those players sound incredible as it is, but it's really tough to dial in that sound in a big room like that. And Dave Cinco just just nailed it, man. He is so great. So it was nice to see Dave and, and hear his magic. And uh, yeah, so anyway, I just want to thank everybody and hope you have a happy new year. Again, if you haven't followed me on Instagram yet, if you could follow me on Instagram, that would be great. If you haven't left a review, you could leave a review. That would be awesome as well. Please be sure you subscribe and all that wonderful stuff as well. And let's get into the sponsors here. I think I have the best sponsors in the uh, in the podcast world. Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Peghead Nation's lineup of mandolin instructors. They are incredible. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, Ian Curry, they all include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part right here, join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use that promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, got to see Adrian and Derek from Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs. Ear Trumpet Labs hand-build microphones in Portland, Oregon. 
Their mics are beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out today at eartrumpetlabs.com. Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Pava Mandolins in Austin, Texas. You can also buy Pava Mandolins at Elderly Instruments. Elderly is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced to beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 50th year. They're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. And straight up strings, Roger Simonoff has worked really, really hard on coming up with some of the best sounding strings that you can put on your instrument. And you can put them on any instrument now. Mandolin, banjo, acoustic guitar, and resonator guitar. Uh, Hear every note of every chord. You can read all about the science behind these strings if you go to straightupstrings.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter. And also while you're there... Take advantage of the 10% discount, the mandolins and beer special Roger's, Roger is offering until the end of the year, December 31st, 2022. You can get 10% off books and strings. And that includes, that includes the packs of strings as well. Just use the code, all one word, all caps, Mando Beer at checkout. All right, y'all. I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays. Whatever you celebrate, I hope you have the best time. Stay healthy. Have a happy new year. Play some mandolin. Cheers, everybody. Talk to you next year. Well, now it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Peter Rowan. Peter, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for calling, man. Oh, man. Thank you for doing it. And first off, congratulations uh, on your induction into the uh, Hall of Fame. I was there for your induction at IBMA. Your speech was incredibly uh, humbling and powerful. And I loved how you started with the analogy. A turtle on a stump. (laughs) Turtle on a stump. I love that analogy. Yeah, that's a good old country expression that a friend of mine reminded me of when I was talking to him about going down there. Arthur Hancock, he wrote uh, several songs for Willie Nelson and Ray Price, lives up in Kentucky. And he, uh, he uh, and I said, I don't know what to say about this speech. He said, well, you know, when I re- he received the, uh, the Thoroughbred Award for raising a couple of horses that won the Kentucky Derby. And he said when he had to give his speech, he thought of the turtle on the fence post. And he said, man, why don't you think about that? And I thought, man, that is the perfect way to pay some homage to the people that got you there. <laughs> you know, because that's who we all are. We're, we're the result of so many people's, you know, support and, uh, you know, uh, enthusiasm and you know the the green light right you know the green light you get from bill monroe and the red light <laughs> <laughs> i'm so excited to talk to you about this um because again you have 
I mean, obviously there are mandolin players, you know, before Bill Monroe going way back, but Bill Monroe really just, he changed the mandolin world. Um, and, you know, we, I wouldn't be doing this podcast without Bill Monroe. And it's really great that, I mean, you played with Bill Monroe. And then when I saw you at IBMA again, too, you're playing with Wyatt Ellis, you know, from the, the, the reason why so many players started it through a bunch of players that we'll talk about all, all the way up to uh, Wyatt. I just think it's amazing that, you, that you've been, um, you know, had some of these incredible players alongside you on the way. Well, you know, it started out with uh, Joe Val. up in Boston he and I I, mean, I was playing mandolin with Keith and Rooney myself with Bill Keith and Jim Rooney and um, and uh, Joe was a buddy of mine and we said he taught me how to all the Leuven Brothers harmonies and those songs Blue Sky Boys and and so it was just a we had a duet just a guitar and vocal and then I also had a duet playing mandolin with a friend of mine, Bobby Emery, who who started a band called How Banks Fail. And, uh, and <laughs> it's a great band yeah. name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, he was a very smart guy, very witty guy. And uh, you know, but you know, Everett Lilly was in Boston at that time, and he was he was playing that a certain style. Um, <laughs> Joe Val had had he had a style of his own. It was a lot of Bobby Osborne and Bill Monroe mixed in there, uh, and then Bobby Osborne came up with uh, Benny Birchfield and Sonny and uh, stayed at 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 the house of where uh, my band leader at the time was Bob French and Gracie, the Rainbow Valley Boys and Sweetheart out in Acton, Mass, and. Um, you know, I mostly played for country audiences. I, you know, only got into the coffee house thing very late. Uh, bluegrass at the time, it was a, a kind of a rarefied uh, world. And, uh, but uh, I was drawn to it because it, I liked the blues, but I, I loved the four, three and four part harmonies, duet singing. And and the fact that it was a band, and I had I had always I had always been a band person. I had a little rockabilly combo early on, and when I was just about twelve, thirteen, we started playing around the Boston area. So I loved the interplay with people, and to me, music was always about 
getting together with people and and listening to what they do and and you know interacting with them and when the guitar and mandolin thing you know listening to the blue sky boys and the leuven brothers it was uh you know it was a different world each person had their own approach but uh, uh, there was one song i heard that really turned me around and that was uh when i heard a recording of Bill Monroe's uh, song, Sweetheart, You Done Me Wrong. You told me that your love was true. Sweetheart, I thought the world of you. But now you left me all alone. I have no one to call my own. There was a, a use of a, an, a technique in there that I haven't heard anybody doing very much in, in bluegrass. Bluegrass has sort of fallen into a straight-ahead 4-4 time in terms of, I mean, unless it's Mike Marshall and, and folks like that, they're very, very experimental, you know, who will use, uh, you know, jigs and reels and those kinds of things. Most of most of the music that's coming to bluegrass now is pretty straightforward, uplifting kind of forward leaning beat, and um, and of course you got waltzes and everything like that. But in when Bill Monroe played "Sweetheart, You Done Me Wrong," there's a a technique in there that he stopped using. I think once once he once bluegrass just became a forward roll, a straight ahead kind of thing. Uh, uh, so Lester Platt wrote that song and he sang it, Sweetheart, You Done Me Wrong. And Bill Monroe's backup mandolin in there has a lilting, really lilting uh, uh, rhythm to it. It What it is, is it's a 6-8 rhythm or a jig played against a 4-4 four, four time. And in the mandolin, you have four strings with, and they're double. So if you were to go from the top to the bottom, uh, back and forth across the string, you get da 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 da, da. and uh, it's a very short uh, step to be going da 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 da, da which is six eight, you know, or you know, it's basically a universal rhythm, and it's very much part of African music, and uh, and a lot of you know, for instance, the banjo is an African instrument, but you know, the the sort of the straight ahead two four time. That's how people hear bluegrass. They don't hear the. It's kind of. They don't hear the subtlety anymore in there. Although, Stuart Duncan and me and Mike Compton and Chris Henry have talked about it a lot, that there is this. A whole other rhythmic thing going on in there, um, and it could be brought out a whole lot more by um, you know arrangements and things like that. Um, and I think uh, both Bela and uh, Jerry Douglas have delved into the the Irish kind of jigs kind of thing. I mean, and it's all over Jerry's playing. Jerry has got that whole six eight thing going on all through his playing. But it's a subtlety on the mandolin that I think is 
is something that could get lost because everybody's playing a nobody's playing that I don't hear it that much I don't hear that many people playing that 6-8 feel now with Chris Henry with his Monroe approach it's in there and you know really it once once the once it's in there it's just adding to what what is that straight ahead bluegrass time um but when when I was with Bill Monroe, uh, he'd do a lot of things on the bus that never got to the stage. And uh, we worked on the walls of time for months on the bus. And um, he played it all kinds of different ways. <laughs> but, but I don't know if, if he had... Somehow he had just gone deeply into the blues by the time I was in the band and... It was a lot of downstroke picking, uh, and the mandolin's action was impossible anyway at that time. <laughs> wow! Uh, you know, <laughs> sure. But he could still do the the diddle home thing at the end of the line. You know that that lick. You know he'd do that crazy pull off on the seventh from the uh, was it the uh, D string down to the G? I guess yeah. But uh, you know, getting back to Bobby Osborne, when Bobby Osborne came up to New England, you know, of course, all the bluegrass people were, you know, just in a general state of uh, excitement and and adulation for Bobby's playing. At the time, he had recorded an album of instrumentals, and I remember there were tunes like "Lost Indian" and "Billy in the Low Ground" and a bunch of really beautiful tunes on there. But uh, he sort of except for a few turnarounds, he didn't explore that much. In other words, he, he kind of let Sonny take the instrumental, you know, lead the instrumental charge, sort of, so to speak. But uh, Bobby Osborne's instrumental album is full of these uh, time subtleties, six eights against uh, four four and things like that. And, uh, Joe Val picked up on that, so Joe had Joe had that uh, that triplet feel in his playing too. Because you know, once you got two strings, you you've got a string and an echo of the same string, right? And and if you go a downstroke and a backstroke, you already got that six eight uh, feel started. You know, it's just a subtlety. Anyway, I I love that, and uh, and I play mandola mostly now, and uh, and it it's really great on the mandola because the mandola lends itself to some kind of Irish sounding stuff too, and like the key of D on the mandola is A on the mandolin, and and it's really easy to hear the six eight on a on a on a mandola. It's a because it's a longer sound, you know the tones are longer, and uh, and you you listen for uh, sustain a little bit more. Anyway, that's part of my things. But I was a mandolin player, and uh, working with Bob French and Gracie afforded me to be a mandolin player. And when Bobby Osborne came up to Boston, and uh, we got to hang out a little bit. I mean, I was just a kid, you know. I was like. How old was I at that time? I think I was 17. And Bobby and and Sonny and Benny Birchfield, you know, they were 
they were on the a rise of their career. They hadn't done Rocky Top or anything like that yet. Oh, they wow. were just still, they were still doing the the brilliant stuff that they did early on. You know the harmonies and I really appreciated uh, Bobby's work. I got to play with him. He got to be on one of my albums. Uh, I got to get him for for one. Him and Jesse McReynolds both played on the, my last record for uh, Compass Records. Yeah, that was that was a thrill to have those guys in there. Well, I've been calling on my Savior. Oh Lord, set me free. I've been calling on my absolute legends as well absolutely and you know what they were they were so great you know it was was just like man i wished i had done that you know years ago but my trajectory took me you know from from bill monroe within five years we had olden in the way going that was only five years after I left Bill Monroe. But in that time, because of the way the music world was at that time, and it was big labels and it was actual product, uh, they were hungry to record. And, and, you know, we did, we were unknown quantities, a lot of us. You know, we hadn't fully formed what we were going to be. We were known as the talent, you know, or as, as one record company proudly said you boys are my soldiers <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you know you're going out there all on your own <laughs> you know, good luck fellas <laughs> hit the front line buddy and keep going <laughs> you know so uh yeah and we, we played a lot of rock and roll uh or it was sort of a hybrid kind of music i mean the band c train had a uh, richard green in the band and he he had been the fiddler that I managed to get into Bill Monroe's band, um, because mainly because I had heard tapes of him from a guy named Adams Otis uh, taking lessons from Scott Stoneman, and I thought Scotty was was the man, you know. And uh, and Richard had all that in him. And when he joined the band, Bill Monroe said, you know, he wouldn't let him play any backup. You know, he let him play, have his head on the solos, you know, let him run on the solos. But on the backup, he made him chop. And man, (laughs) Richard developed an unbelievable backbeat chop on the fiddle. And um, it was something that he carried forward into uh, this sort of, I don't know what kind of music it was. It was was rock and roll because it had bass and drums and keyboards. And I played... uh, Electric, I played Telecaster, and Richard played fiddle. And we did Sally Gooden, and quite honestly, the Orange Blossom special was the showstopper. You know, it, it, that was like any concert we did was just, that was the piece de resistance, man. And it was the, nobody could follow that. And uh, yeah, and he had developed the, that whole thing uh, as a real showpiece and with Bill Monroe he did it all the time I think his first night on the Opry Bill had him play uh, the Orange Blossom special you know and Bill would always say ain't that something (laughs) (laughs) 
How did you find yourself playing with Bill Monroe? Well, I was uh, playing with uh, Bill Keith, and who had been a bluegrass boy. And he had left the, the Bluegrass Boys, and I, I don't think he'd mind me saying this, but because uh, the Blue, uh, Bill Monroe was coming through New York and was invited to play uh, the Hootenanny Show. And in the 60s, there was this, this show called Hootenanny. And it was, uh, it had different folk artists. Uh, you know, I never saw much of it because I didn't have a TV at the time and I was, you know, uh, just not watching the TV, but Hootenanny was a folk show. And then Pete Seeger had a nice show uh, that featured oh, everybody from Josh White and to Sonny and Terry to Sonny, Terry and Brian and McGee to uh, the Stanley Brothers. Uh, but it was because Pete Seeger had been blackballed from the Hootenanny show because of some fallout from the House on American activities, uh, the great, you know, fear of communism that was sweeping the country in the 50s. They called Pete Seeger uh, down to D.C. to uh, testify and say who he had been at parties with and who were these people and, you know, was, was he a communist and, and uh, you know, Pete Seeger, I think, refused to testify. And so he got blackballed from a lot of different things. Um, whereas Josh White, being a black man, felt obligated that they had him. You know, he had been at those parties with Woody Guthrie and all those folks up in New York. And he just didn't feel he, he had any, any way out being in society at that time. And, and uh, Pete Seeger told him, he said... You know, when he, he called Pete Seeger and he said, I'm, I got to go do this, Pete. I'm going to have to name names. And, and uh, Pete Seeger said, don't worry, Josh. Don't worry about it at all. It's just uh, it's just a, a, a it's going to pass. And it's it's no one will, you know, it won't be a, a, everybody will understand, you know. And, you know, I mean, because a lot of people in the movie business, too, a lot of writers, everybody had to give up their friends of uh, not knowing that they could refuse the right to testify. I mean, it was a pretty scary time, you know, in the fifties and I was in school as a kid and, and Pete Seeger was one of the leaders of the, the Newport folk festival and the folk music thing. He could stand up in front of people and bring this tremendous presence that he, he and he and Woody Guthrie had to sort of developed the style and that's what Eric Von Schmidt and Bob Dylan and myself to a degree and uh, quite a lot of us were picking up on that. And it was a, a feeling of, um, of camaraderie, of, of a tremendous thing that music is going to carry us forward. And we're discovering some history of our own through, through these old songs. And we're also discovering what America is. And so uh, I was... Uh, uh, Bill Bill Keith had been with Bill Monroe, but when they came to New York to play the Hootenanny, he felt that he had to be loyal to Pete Seeger, or because Pete, without Pete Seeger, Bill Keith said he never would have picked up the banjo. Wow, he never would have, you know, the Pete Seeger got him started, you know, 
And so when when Bill Monroe, you know, sort of beyond the politics of it, got invited to play the Hoot Nanny show, uh, Bill Keith had to, he just said, I can't do it. And he left the band at that point. They'd been on the road for about a year. Um, and uh, and Del McCurry was in the band playing guitar. And I think he left soon after that. But uh, me, working with Bill Monroe was, was a test, man. It was a real test. And you... As he said, you've got to be a hoss. <laughs> you know, you you got to be, you got to really pull the load, you know, and you got to do all that stuff that a good horse will do. And um, and so Bill Keith went back to Boston and joined back up with his old pal uh, Jim Rooney. And now Jim uh, was a a singer from Dedham, Mass. He's he's. I mean, at that time, he was from Dedham, and he had grown up listening to uh, some of the same radio that I had heard, which was uh, Buzz Busby, uh, Scott Stoneman, and Jack Clements, who produced Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash. Um, uh, they were playing in Boston at a radio station called the WCOP um, Hayloft Jamboree. So we had Buzz Busby in Boston, and I mean, he was a great, a fiery mandolin player, you know, more of a, like an attack, more of a, like a really almost an electric guitarist type of, you know, just as intense tremolo, maybe the most intense tremolo. And Chris Henry, and Chris Henry, you know, he's studied all these people. He can do the Frank Wakefield stroke. He can uh, do the Buzz Busby licks, you know. Uh, Bill Monroe, of course, and Bobby Osborne. But uh, Frank Wakefield was uh, another person that I began to know at that time. And Frank was, ex he understood all of the permutations of the mandolin in terms of rhythmic uh, possibilities during a solo. He actually did play 6-8. Uh, within the four four time as a, almost just as a matter of course and uh but uh, Keith and Rooney needed a mandolin player, and Joe Val had joined up with a, a band out there called the Charles River Valley Boys. My good friend Bob Siggins and John Cook, Fritz Richmond were in that band and uh, i I was sort of an outsider I had tried to stay in school. You know, from my parents' sake and my granddad, who had, I think, kind of really helped a lot with the tuition and everything. Um, I was trying to do justice to that effort that they were all making for me. But I, quite honestly, music just, I don't know, expression through music just really called to me. And so I, I, I left school and was hanging out around the Cambridge folk scene and, you know, uh, you know, my my parents had a uh, an old the old Rowan farm out there in Wayland, Massachusetts, and so I I would bring Joe Val out to my place, and we'd go down by the barn, and and we'd play for two or three hours on a weeknight. Uh, it didn't endear me to Joe's wife, but uh, <laughs> Thelma, you know, because I'd I'd be there, and she she'd say. She said, Thelma, if you're listening, sweetie, I love you. But um, 
But she, I remember Joe, Joe said, you know, I don't, she don't like me to go out leave home in the in the weekday pete you know but i would pick up joe after work after i had supper about six o'clock i'd pick him up my mother's station wagon and we'd go out to wayland which is about 25 minutes away out in the country and uh so from seven thirty eight, you know we'd, we'd have an hour and 15 20 minutes just to play music and sing together and um he really influenced me a lot and really prepared me for being a, a bluegrass boy. So long story short, <laughs> it, Bill Monroe was coming up to New England to do some shows uh, because Mike Seeger and Ralph Rinsler, uh, who had been a, in the Greenbrier Boys and was now with the Smithsonian uh he was beginning to start the Smithsonian Folklife uh, Department. He was managing Doc Watson and managing Bill Monroe at the same time. And he and Mike Seeger thought, wow, if we can get a young band, you know, it was a little outrageous, actually, what they were thinking. They were thinking, you know, because Bill was, it was just sort of like he had a, a a sort of a an entourage of players that would play with him, you know, off and on. Uh, you know, Benny Williams and uh, uh, Joe Stewart, you know, a lot of folks who, you know, were the guys to, that would fill in or would be in the band for a while and then not be. And, and he seemed to be in between, Bill Monroe seemed to be in between you know, being a, a country star who's, you know, in the business whose popularity had waned after the, you know, the the great bands with Jimmy Martin and Vassar Clements and Rudy Lyle after, you know, and Carter Stanley had been in there. And, you know, by the 67 is, I guess, what they, they, can, they felt that a lot of people have said that bluegrass really got you know, overrun by Elvis Presley's success with rock and roll. Although uh, Elvis certainly, <laughs> he thought a lot of Bill Monroe. Um, yeah, and uh, so uh, Bill came up solo, I think with the idea that, you know, we got a young band there, you know. We had Tex Logan on fiddle, Gene Lowinger on fiddle, Bill Keith on banjo, Everett Lilly's son, Everett Allen, on bass, and me on guitar. And we were all 22 or 23 years old. And and it was because of Bill Keith that I that I got to, to play that gig. Uh, I think Bill put the band together. Um, with that very small bluegrass scene around Boston, he knew... He knew who was around. And we did a little tour of New England and uh, played a nice concert in, uh, I think it was Symphony Hall or, or yeah, it was a big hall in Boston. And uh, it was Doc Watson's birthday. So my introduction to being part of that scene was, you know, from just playing little country bar gigs, you know, with Bob French and some of the coffee house and college circuit with Keith and Rooney. Suddenly here was this, you know, the first set was Bill Monroe and 
Doc Watson doing Monroe Brother duets. And that, that was astounding. And then then it's my turn to be out on stage with him. <laughs> and I had learned uh, a great old song of Bill's called The Old Kentucky Shore. And uh, Chris Henry and I do that actually now. And there's just something so great about those those old haunted songs, you know. They just chill bumps, you know. And what attracted me to bluegrass was, of you know, the instrumental thing was something I wasn't like at the top of a game of, of my game as an instrumentalist. I could play rhythm guitar, but I loved the singing, you know. I loved the harmonies. Man, were just unbelievable at that time, especially because. It hadn't smoothed out that much. You know, you still had Earl Taylor. You had uh, the Osmond brothers. You had uh, you had Jimmy Martin. You had Jack Cook, who had just come back from being a bluegrass boy and was a solo guitar slinger. He, Jack Cook was a rhythm guitar man uh, for Bill Monroe. And he came back, and he was playing around the Baltimore area before he became the bass player with uh, Ralph Stanley. And Jack had, and I remained friends the whole it, from that moment on, from about you know before I went with Bill Monroe, because he was the first guy I met when I went down and visited Jack Tottle, another mandolin player down in uh, D.C. That seemed to be the hotbed, the, the local hotbed of bluegrass, you know down closer to the south, at the northern tip of the Appalachian Trail, really. And so many uh, people, like Smiley Hobbs, uh, uh, Jerry Stewart, another one of oh, fabulous mandolin player. And uh, and Jerry's still alive, and he's, uh, I hear from him quite a lot, man. He enters into some of these conversations. But uh, he had a recording on a, a Mike Seeger-produced record called Mountain Music Bluegrass Style, and uh, Jerry Stewart played a a, 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 man, a tuned mandolin, and I remember that. That was very unusual, very unique to hear. You know, kind of like the Bill Monroe Get Up John tuning and and stuff. There's a lot to do, and I mean, at one point, I actually got another gig playing mandolin with uh, Steve Earle. and that was because Sam Bush couldn't make it, and <laughs> but. I, <laughs> But um, I, I I I used a lot of my uh, I used I tuned the man, mandola and on his song Train to Coming, so we got to we got to rock out a little bit on that. Yeah, yeah so that's great. It, that's how it happened. <laughs> what was it like as a mandolin player to to play with Bill Monroe? Well, I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you the first night that we got together to play. You know the bands all huddled in a little group right you know bluegrass is all about listening and um you know as 
most music is. It's, but, you know, there are certain things that happen when it gets very, very loud and people just play their parts. But um, bluegrass is a real sensitive listening situation. And uh, we were going over some tunes and Bill was sort of about four feet away from the huddle. And then as the tune was going on and people were taking solos, he would step further and further away. And the weird thing was that his chop on the mandolin didn't get softer as he stepped away. It got louder. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, that chop was what changed his style, I think. Early on, he the chop was just part of his repertoire and it and these other subtleties one string subtleties and things were happening and uh, but by the time i played with him as i say his mandolin action was so high it was very hard to play and he had just got into this whole bluesy thing that just unbelievable and um, well he was always i think his most authentic uh memorable pieces to my ear are the ones where he are the ones he wrote that you know like first whippoorwill uh, These real bluesy kind of things. And, uh, you know, uh, a friend of mine, Greg Gehring, and I, Greg is another mandolin player. He worked, he played with Jimmy Martin briefly, um, and he has had a solo career since then. But Greg Gehring and I worked on Greg's record with him for, I guess it was for Warner Brothers. But as we were going, I stayed in New York, and we we hung out a lot, and, and, uh, We'd sit and play all these old bluegrass duets. He knew the duets, and uh, and the, one of the things about uh, Bill's mandolin playing is like on the blues, you know, like on uh, Rocky Road or uh, or uh, any of the blue yodels, the the Jimmy Rogers stuff that he liked. You know, his his solos. We found out are by transposing them to the piano, they are the the right-hand parts of basically barrel house piano playing. Oh, wow, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, if you listen to people like uh, out of New Orleans uh, that played the uh, the old stride piano style, you know, you know, and um, they call it barrel house when they, have, I guess, had a little more blues to it, their right hands are what Bill Monroe adopted to the mandolin. You can hear it. Just you listen to some of these old timers like uh, Champion Jack Dupree. <laughs> Shoes. I feel like walking. 
people like that of the, of the older school. I think even all the way up into Professor Long here to a degree, but pro, the professor certainly, he, you know what I mean. His he 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 really developed his style. And but the earlier ones that Bill Monroe would have heard when he went to New Orleans, which he told me he did. Uh, he told me he took flat and scrugs down there because they were so green, you know. He had to he had to teach him something. But <laughs> he did. He said they were down there for two months. It's in my diary. Yeah. Wow. They were down yeah, they worked out of New Orleans and I guess, you know, at the time Bill could pretty much call up a lot of radio people and they would, you know, facilitate a show because he and uh, Charlie had been very big together. And what happened when uh, Bill and Charlie split up was that part of the deal was that Charlie kept the territory that they had developed together, you know, east of the Mississippi River. And I think Charlie said to Bill, and Bill, you can have the rest of the country. <laughs> and Bill was like, yeah, oh, that's great, you know. But but there is a story in, I think, the Bluegrass Reader uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the, um, the Bluegrass Reader, that's a compilation of stories uh, of Bluegrass Boys. Uh, there's one one in there, and I can't remember the name right now, but there's one in there where uh, Bill Monroe called up a DJ uh, over in Memphis because he was living in a state park. He was camped out, and he the announcement went out over the DJ. He said, Bill Monroe's looking for a band. And so this the guy who's the story about, I can't remember his name, went out and found Bill in the park, and there he was, and he auditioned. And... Uh, Bill was there cooking over an open fire and I think sleeping in his car. He got the car. I think that was the deal. <laughs> stay out of my territory and you can have the car. Just go, you know. And so he did. He went down. Uh, you know, I don't know if he got into the Oklahoma area, but I know that New Orleans was, was something. That he talked about that a lot. Uh, I mean, a lot at one time. One, we had a whole evening of just talking about the blues and, and he said that, you know, he, yeah, he, he had taken Flatten Scruggs down there. So maybe that was the beginning of him working outside the box, you know, over in, beyond the Mississippi River, uh, probably working Louisiana a little bit, you know, and maybe over into Mississippi. Uh, because in those days, he could, as I say, you know, <laughs> the DJs knew him. They had, the Monroe Brothers sold a lot of records. And they were very popular. And so here's Bill Monroe out on his own, and I'm sure that he could just make a few phone calls and get something going. I, it, it's funny, too, you mentioned that, you know, like the, the the Barrel House piano stuff. I mean, when you listen to Chuck Berry, it's it's crazy the influence that Bill Monroe had over Chuck Berry's style. I mean, it's 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 like an electric guitar version of Bill Monroe, you know, it's, it's always blown me away, especially after I started playing mandolin and became a big Bill Monroe fan. And then when you go back and listen to Chuck Berry, you almost can't unhear the Bill Monroe influence on that playing. <laughs> right. Right. I, and I thought that by the time I joined the band, Chuck Berry's influence was very strong on Bill, you know, because he was playing mostly blue stuff. But then, you know, he knew all the instrumentals, too. I'll tell you one little story that I've told before that, 
you know, it's about that triplet thing again. Uh, when we rehearsed with Bill, which was only a few times, and it was because I called the rehearsal at, at Ralph Rinsler's insistence, uh, <laughs> he said, make Bill rehearse. <laughs> and uh, Bill didn't care about rehearsing. I mean, he had already rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> right. He, he knew his parts. <laughs> yeah, he knew his parts. And so... The rehearsal would be me and the guys going through all the material and Bill just sitting there opening mail <laughs> and and dropping envelopes of anything like a bill would go into the wastebasket and anything like a royalty statement would go into his hat. He had his hat upside down. And, um, and this happened, I think, that few times that we rehearsed. I, I remember it happening twice. Um, we may not have rehearsed for more than that, but uh, at the very end of us playing, you know, and we're playing for Bill. He's there. He's not playing. He's <laughs> going through his mail. And at the very end, he'd pick up his instrument and play um, a shottish which is is a triplet based uh, piece you know it's a, a German name for uh, a reel I uh, know for a jig yeah it goes uh, you know this particular one that there I think he's recorded it after a while, but the the way this you had to pick the strings was to be playing triplets. And you know, when I lived in Texas all those roadhouses would play shottishes um, for people. There's a certain way of dancing to them too, you know. But that the basic rhythm is da 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 bump bump, and that's all triplets. And I always felt that he was trying to say, "You got to put these notes. You got to have this feel in there," because we never played the thing live ever. Although I think later he recorded it, but. It, it was a very definite, not what we had been rehearsing. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was like, this is different. You got to learn to play this. And I thought, I think, I mean, you know, he was not only a great performer who was, uh, uh, had a lot of musical knowledge. He was an actual uh, uh, musical force whose method of teaching was basically on the bandstand, you know, right out there in front of the people. You, you That's where you learned. And uh, for him to point out a tune like that in a, in a situation not near the stage was like, to me, it was like a very definite message that there's something in this music that is rhythmically different than what you might think playing that one, the boom chang, you know, playing the two, four kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool.
And it, the story about how, you know, the, the bluegrass breakdown story and, and that is just legendary. It's so weird. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to, if you could tell a little bit of the story, because it's, I mean, that's like one of the all time great bluegrass songs. Like as long as people are playing bluegrass, there's quite a few of the songs that you've had a hand in either writing your own or co-writing that are going to live. As long as people are playing group bluegrass music, songs like that, and you know, are going to still be played. It's, it's, so great and i would love to not only maybe talk about that but you mentioned that you guys worked on it on the bus a lot before it really took the shape that it is and maybe talk about writing with bill monroe yeah well i mean it actually did happen that we were driving that bus and it was right by horse cave kentucky that it had broken down and you know and with bill monroe it was never an emergency you know i mean there were a couple of times when the bus broke down and they had me and Richard hitchhike to a local farm and tell them that Bill needed to borrow a car. <laughs> and, the, and the guy gave the car to us, and it was an Edsel. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, oh, Bill Monroe's broken up, broken down up the road, and he sent us ahead here, said that maybe you had a car we could use. And it was sure enough, man, the guy gave us his car. Me and Richard drove this Edsel. It was unbelievable. And then, you know, we go back and pick up the boys and drive on to somewhere. I think that was the night J.D. Crow played with us. And, uh, God, we barely got to the gig at all. It was in a racetrack up in Kentucky. And J.D. was there. That was the night he played with us. That was something. Um, yeah, writing with Bill, you know, uh, truthfully, you know, I think I he may have felt that I was encroaching on his uh, some very personal space because, you know, bluegrass is, to us is about a vibe, but to Bill Monroe it was about him. You know, and when I say a vibe, I mean like memories of mother and dad and the little girl and the dreadful snake and uh, I hear a sweet voice calling. You know, these really beautiful, wonderful almost otherworldly sounding songs. And basically what happened is I was standing out looking over the edge of the canyon there at the sunrise coming up over the Kentucky to the east. And and these birds are flying up out, out of the canyon. It was really beautiful because of the, the it was warm air up above now. And the, so the cold 
giraffes were lifting the birds at sunrise up out of the canyon. They were they were singing, and and Bill walked up to me, uh, and he actually said, you know, listen good to this, and don't you ever forget it. And I, and to me, that was like the door opened at that point. I was invited into a, a space of creativity that it seemed that he was willing to share, although I wasn't, it was always, I mean, to me, I was sharing in his creative space. And I never thought of myself, uh, I never had self-value in those days of, of, I mean, of sensing that I was giving something to the situation. So I always felt like I was like, uh, you know, helping his creative process. You know what I'm saying? But, but because the melody was pretty complete and it was t- typically, it was the same melody as uh, Walk Softly on This Heart of Mine, you know? It's the same melody as the first Whippoorwill is da 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 you know, springtime is near, my darling. You know, down over the valley, way below. You know, they, he had he had a little it, going to the f- four chord, changed it from the other two songs. I mean, it's 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 a Bill Monroe melody. You know, it's that that's that guy's place. I mean, he knows that space. So many songs have a similar melody. Uh, and I think he just felt it was his song. And uh, but man, we worked on it. Uh, I mean, uh, he wrote the first line. Uh, he wrote, uh, "The wind is." It was actually there was a wind blowing, and I was standing out there, looking down at the valley below. And he walked up and he, he says, "Listen, good, and listen, don't forget it." The wind is blowing across the mountains and down over the valley way below, and. That was it. That's all that he sang. And I wrote pretty much the rest of the song. It, again, thinking of his sort of uh, psychic space or more of like what he drew upon. To me, the Walls of Time says bluegrass. That says what bluegrass was to me. Uh, and it was. It, it started with hearing him play that chop on the mandolin that was the first instant i began to think about the walls of time because that was a, a wall of time one of those first shows i played with him he would hit that mandolin and it was a literally a wall of time you could just you know i mean it was a solid thing and uh so that was in my mind and the other thing that was in my mind was this sort of uh, gothic um uh, I think if maybe from Emily Bronte, uh, what was her, what was her book? Wuthering Heights. There was something about this whole lonesomeness of this stark lonesome sound, and you know, I, I had been quite a bookworm. I mean, because I was really educated by English teachers who. Wanted me to understand poetry, and when I heard bluegrass music, I understood that it was the same. It was 
it was connected with the Romantic poets. It was connected with the 1850s, uh, you know, uh, with Byron, you know, and Keats and people like that. And that when you heard certain songs like uh, The Girl in the Blue Velvet Band, and you find out that, oh, it's actually Aurelius, an Irish tune <laughs> called The Girl in the, <laughs> in the Black Velvet Band. And, and here it is in the United States talking about an opium deal in Chinatown. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that, then learning became a joy for me because I could see there a reality to it. It wasn't just theory. Um, and then the history of the whole thing, you know, and the historical ballads and that, that wonderful uh, tune that the country gentleman did called Two Little Boys about the two brothers in the Civil War. I mean... really captured my imagination and uh, so when Bill sang that those first lines the wind is blowing over the mountains and uh, the wind is blowing across the mountains and down over the valley way below I don't know my mind went it sweeps the grave of my darling when I die that's where I want to go now that also is a quote from another tune you know a, a reference to see that my grave is kept clean mm -hmm. you know swept clean basically and it so the but it was not thought out it was just came to mind you know when he sang you know when he sang the first two opening phrases it was just a natural to me to go to this haunted sort of place that i associated with his music which was you know I mean, I think I was painting a picture of his soul in a way with my lyrics. And it was probably too good a picture because he he didn't want to give me any credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, that's me. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think I think I was doing a portrait of, of Bill Monroe's uh, sort of creative genie or something that lived in him. You know, because all the words are, I mean, they're they're in a different place than, uh, it's a different kind of song. It's sort of a gospel song in a weird way, but it's uh, that whole idea of love beyond the grave uh, really does come from uh, Wuthering Heights, uh, where Heathcliff and the girl Elizabeth, you know, he... The sort of gothic tortured love that transcends time. Anyway, it it comes from some of that because I I, I know I wrote all those words, and um, so they, uh, Lord, send the angels for my darling, take her to that home on high. You know, I mean, Bill was a great person to write with because you you go, Lord, send the angels for my darling. That's right, that's right. Take her to that home on high. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'll, I'll wait. Now, it's I'll wait my time out here on Earth, love. It's not waste. 
Ricky Skaggs saying waste. No, I'll, oh, no. I'll waste my time out here on Earth Love. No, and no, we're not wasting time. <laughs> I'll wait my time out here on Earth Love and come to you when I die. Now, that is something I think Bill. I mean, he, he didn't stop at that song. I mean, he, he kept writing, you know, and, and I kept writing. A, I wrote another song to a melody he gave me. Um, or a melody he thinks I stole from him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we recorded it with Earth Opera. But it's basically My Last Days on Earth, which is the House of New Orleans. Um, you know, it's an old da 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 conductor of those electric uh, musical lines that that exist somewhere in the deep south you know in our imaginations and uh, you know and the atmosphere of traveling with him was was like that I mean it was funky and this old wreck of a bus that couldn't you know be, end up back in the some transit company sleeping on the bus while they worked on it, you know. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. But I remember the road being mostly, uh, I mean, we, we drove during the day for sure, but it was those late night rides where Bill at one in the morning would take out the mandolin. And if I wasn't driving the bus, I'd kind of gravitate towards where he was sitting and, just musing, you know, amusing himself with tones. And he would work on tones. He would like, and he'd sing tones. He'd tone. He'd, you know, he'd, he'd actually like vocalize feelings and things like blues and he'd go, you know, and he'd, he'd, he'd work on the mandolin in, in, in ways that would, be the the sort of the creative the fire that would go into his stage performances but he didn't take all those ideas onto the stage i have to say that uh he he kept his act together you know mm -hmm. he, and he was very very conscious of of not disappointing his fans his fans were there to see Bill Monroe, and he was going to be Bill Monroe. But off stage, he was in a freer space, and he would sing in the back of the bus. And that's when I asked him. I, I said, "Where was one night he was? You know, I had just finished driving. And I guess James jumped into the driver's seat, and we changed on the fly. And I walked back, and I heard Bill, and it was like, you know, very circumspect." It's just, oh, is this a private moment? This is a private moment. You know what I mean? So I'm not going to just jump in there and go, hey, man, that sounds great. <laughs> you, know, <it's> like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, I was only 22 or three. And so what you do is, what I would do is, I'm, those are the treasured moments for me, is hearing him toning, you know, either on the mandolin or vocalizing. And, and, and that's all you could really say it was, was he was toning. He was finding places that had a vibration that was moving and, and, and mysterious. And it was always at night. So I always associate those sounds with night. 
Um, and I just, I remember going back uh, and sitting near, near where he was in one of those seats and, uh, and he, you know, and I'll tell you what, when you, when you did that, he knew you were there, you know what I mean? And he, and it was like, you became the listener and it allowed him, he didn't get shy, you know, it allowed him to come out more. I mean, he, he it's weird, you know, it was like a sense of him working stuff out, feelings and that lonesome bluesy kind of thing mostly is what I remember. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah. He uh he would be sitting there back to singing and going and then he goes and then he talked to me. That's what allowed me to enter into the conversation. He was doing this uh moaning kind of <laughs> he goes, That's the that's the Indian sound there. He said, That's the American American Indian sound and I go, Oh, you know, I mean, he did Cheyenne, and that was, you know, a form of American Indian chanting in the beginning of that song at the end, too. And so here he is in the bus, and he's, and he actually says, this is the Indian sound. And I'm like, wow, yeah. And uh, so I, that invited me into the conversation, and um, I asked him, I said, well, at some point in that moment, I said, well, well, where did you first hear the blues? I mean, and I, he, well, his answer wasn't where he first heard it, but it was where I think he felt that it, he absorbed most of it. And it was uh, in New Orleans. He said that he, he stayed in New Orleans, brought Flatt and Scruggs down there because they were so green. And, uh, and then you start to hear that right-hand barrel house piano, high boogie-woogie going on. And that's what he, and that's how he ended up, you know, playing those, the mandolin just picks that up real easy. You know, the bluesy kind of right hand of the piano, of the ragtime piano. Uh, and he said that uh, he, uh, I said, what kind of, what kind of sounds could you hear down there at that time? He said, well, a man could hear any kind of sounds, you know, and through. Uh, he said you had the jump time, a jump time, and he said, and sock time. So sock time, I think, is more, I, I think it's a subtlety, and I think jump time is more that walking bass Rocky Road Blues would be, I think, jump time. Mm -hmm. Whereas sock time would be more like uh, true life blues or uh, sitting on top of the world. I think, the, you know, that's, I think, in the sock time. But jump time is a little different. It's a, you know, I think that's that more straight ahead barrel house or really ragtimey. Well, he had passed through the ragtime era early on when string beans was in the band i mean i think bill was always bill you know what i mean it was always like he he was so sure of himself that whatever sounds came along that could be part of what he was doing would be part of what he's doing 
You know what I mean? I don't think he went like, I need to find somebody who plays like, hmm, Earl Scruggs. No, I don't <laughs> think it was like, I think it was like, it was like string beans was fine. He had no problem with string, you know? And then suddenly it was like, whoa, string leads to, oh, he loved Uncle Dave Macon, uh, who he knew. Uh, and, uh, and suddenly here's Earl Scruggs with this really forward role. And, and I think Bill himself would have said, that's right, that's what I'm looking for. As if he was looking for that. <laughs> right. But, it, but, but that happened to show up. And so that's, that's what it was. And yeah, and I, I think that's how he, he felt about things. And also, you know, the guitar playing in the early days was not flat picking. The guitar playing was all done with a, a thumb pick and a finger pick, both Carter Stanley and uh, 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 Lester Flat played with the thumb pick and that's really a blues technique and it really goes back to the origins of the guitar as a Spanish guitar, a flamenco kind of thing where you play with your fingers and um, Vassar Clemens used to talk about uh, witnessing uh, Chubby Wise at Bill's request teaching Jimmy Martin to play with a flat pick um, because, and I'll wrap this up just saying that there is an old photo that y you might have seen of the Bluegrass Quartet. You know, they're in a radio station somewhere, and there's only two instruments. On one end is Bill Monroe with a mandolin. In the middle are Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs and, you know, maybe the Cedric on the bass standing in there as part of the bluegrass quartet. And then the other end is this guy playing a D18 with a flat pick. And that's Chubby Wise, the fiddle player. And when you, when you, you know, at first when you look at the picture, you're kind of like, yeah, that's it. But if you actually know what you realize who that is, that is Chubby. And he had a pizzicato way of playing the, uh, the fiddle with a flat pick, you know, to get a little more volume out of it. And, and so Bill requested him to teach Jimmy Martin, who was playing with the thumb pick, to play with a flat pick. So, so yeah, you know, it's like necessity is the mother of invention or something. It was just like Bill was all about music. It wasn't about being a star. <laughs> it, was all, <laughs> it was all about music all the time, you know, and that's why. You know, little funny anecdotes about what he might have said to have at a diner, or that's why they're so endearing. Is because the guy was a musical obsessed genius, you know, and uh, he, you know he he knew what was going on uh, in a way that it was. Uh, all I can say is that it was like standing next to a fire. And yeah, I, I was going to have that fire and I was going to be burned by it, but it was worth it. Yeah. Man, I got, I've had chill bumps about 10 times in this conversation so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, man, it's been great talking with you and I, I, we'll, let's do some more another time.
Yeah, I was just going to say, man, we've already put in an hour here. I would love to do another one so we could talk a little bit how you, you know, morphed over with with Grisman. And I mean, you've been on, you know, with uh, I've had Chris Henry on, Sharon Gilchrist on, Billy, Billy Bright on. And I would love to, you know, just talk a little bit about, more about that sometime, too. But let me just say, let me just say about David Grisman. He's one of the most interesting players I've ever known. Uh, and as a person, uh, one of the funniest people I've, I've ever met. Uh, Dave and I lived together for a long time, uh, a couple of years back in the early days after I left Bill Monroe. And David was willing to play music. In fact, loved to insist upon playing for hours a day you know and i'm sure we've all been in those situations at times but david was a guy who never got tired of playing never got tired of playing in fact the instrument was always out and um and i remember when sergeant pepper's lonely cards club band came out what we were listening to at the time was indian music we were listening to uh, the dagar brothers ali akbar khan uh, Subalakshmi, this wonderful singer. Uh, and to sit there and li- listen to music with David Grisman was, is when we were on the break from playing music. <laughs> 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 and we never listened to anything that had anything to do with what we were doing. We were just listening to the, the great glory of the musical expression available, whether it be John Coltrane or Ali Akbar Khan. We were on a label called Nonsuch, uh, Electra, and Electra had this other label called Nonsuch. And every time we went to New York to see the people in the label, we'd go into the Nonsuch catalog room and go, they would say, take some albums, boys. <laughs> so <laughs> we'd be listening to like shakuhachi flute. And I mean, we listened to everything. So let's just say that we'll start there next time. That will be great. Well, right. Peter, this has been uh, just a blast. Thank you so much. I can't wait to uh, I can't wait to do it again. Thank you for doing this. All right, man. We'll do it again. You got to Peter. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Cheers, man. Happy Christmas. You too. All right. All right, there you have it. Thank you so much to Peter Rowan for doing the episode. Thank you so much. Thank you again so much for listening and tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next year. Cheers, everybody.